You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, For those of you that don't know me, my name is John Hall. I'm one of the elders here at Citizens Church. And man, what a privilege and honor it is to be here with you this morning. Get to open God's Word together and take a look at it. And so just so excited about all of that. Hope all of you had the opportunity to enjoy Thanksgiving with family and friends. Man, the halls, we had a great Thanksgiving as we celebrated with loved ones. Uh, the food was tremendous, and there is a good chance that I indulged in way, way, way too much of it. Hope you had the same opportunity, but more importantly, we had the chance to reflect on just how blessed we really are and how good and generous God has been to us over the course of the last year, and so he's been better to us than we deserved. But we're leaving the Thanksgiving behind and heading into the Christmas season, and our hope is that Citizens Church, meaning all of us collectively together, would slow down, and slow down long enough to think and to live in accordance with who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. And here's what that might mean for most of us. Let's press pause on the crazy. I mean, you know, you know what I mean, right? I mean, this is a season that comes to control us, and it becomes a monster that, if we're not careful, can consume us and all the things that are going on. There's all the decorations that must go up, the parties and get-togethers that must be managed, all the groceries and the food that have to be purchased. And speaking of purchases, there's all the gifts that have to be acquired, and then we have to get those things wrapped. And then there's the Christmas cards that must be mailed out, the school events, there's the work parties, there's the dinners that must be scheduled, and there's the hanging of stockings, there's the cleaning of the house so that we can fool all of our guests into believing that our house looks like this year-round, right? And then there's all the family traditions that are maintained to make this as magical a season as possible, especially for the children. And at this point, we're only to December 10th. I mean, listen, don't, don't get me wrong. I, okay, I, I love those things, and I want to be a part of those things. And these are all good and right things, but we have to admit there is the possibility that good and even morally neutral things can steal our affections for Jesus. And in this season, the possibility of that happening just goes through the roof. So our hope is that you, church family, would intentionally adopt a slower pace of life to enter into the truth of who Jesus is and what he has provided. So I'm asking you to take inventory of your life, maybe even to ask some hard, honest questions about where our affections truly lie. In other words, have we become so wrapped up in a season that we've forgotten the meaning of it? Speaking of that, this is the first Sunday that we're celebrating Advent. The word Advent is taken from the Latin, and a funny story, uh, one of my sons attended the nine o'clock, and after the service, he came up and he corrected my Latin. And so I didn't know this. The Latin actually means a coming, but it implies an appearance. So I'm just going to say the Latin means an appearing, and refers specifically to the appearances of Jesus Christ. And one of those appearances is one that is passed to us. Christmas marks this advent of Christ, and so we celebrate that he appeared to save his people from their sins, but there still is an advent that is future to us, and Jesus is going to come a second time, and on that day, he will set everything straight for all of eternity, and we will be with him for all of eternity. Praise God for all of that. So if you've been a part of Citizens Church for any length of time, then our recognition and our celebration of Advent is nothing new to you. In fact, this is our ninth year to celebrate Advent in this church. And so we do this for a very specific reason. We want you, Citizens Church, 
to orient your hearts around the one true story, the gospel. And when we do this, meaning orient our hearts around the gospel, our lives will be marked by certain realities. The life of a Christian living in between Jesus' first and second coming should be marked by things that only make sense if they live situated between the advents. In other words, the reality and assurance of Jesus' two advents, one past, one still future to us, means the disciples should live in a certain way. And speaking of orienting our hearts around the one true story of the gospel, let's talk about one facet of the gospel today. Let's talk about a certain reality that affects the way a believer lives in between the two advents, and that is grace. As believers, we want to live lives that are marked by grace, and here's what I mean. Let's begin by defining grace. Grace has two aspects that show up again and again in Scripture. Aspect number one is this. Grace simply means something given that is unmerited or undeserved. We didn't do anything to earn it. It's simply given to us. Aspect number two is grace means something that is beautiful or pleasant. In fact, in modern Greek, the word grace means charming. But theologically, we see both of these aspects in that God chose to save us from our sins of his own volition, his own sovereign will. Not because we did something religious to earn it, but simply because out of his love, he chose to do this for us. And in this gift that God sovereignly gave to us, all our sins are forgiven. Sin no longer rules us or can master us. And we've been given a standing before God where he deems us holy, righteous, and found without stain or blemish. And how beautiful and incredible is that? And if you want something to ponder, to think on, that helps you to slow down during this Christmas season, start there. But here's why grace is so incredible. Every other religion in the world has a system by which an individual tries to earn their way to a right standing with their gods or goddesses. It's like this, perform, try harder, try again, quit messing up. Bring an offering to atone for your mistake. Oops, you messed up again. Bring another offering to atone for that. And on and on and on it goes. And this is how religions work. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. Where the religious answer to living right is to try harder, the gospel teaches that Jesus has accomplished our salvation and deliverance from sin himself. There's no need to do anything further because it is already done, incomplete for us. And so Jesus made a way for all of us where there was no way. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, our lives should be marked by grace. And yet our culture believes that people will attain to a right standing with God through a simple, undefined moral existence. So we have these pithy sayings that go something like this. Well, you know, they are a good person, meaning they have met or exceeded some moral bare minimum that supposedly God will accept But the Bible addresses this reality by declaring that on our own, we are unrighteous, we are unholy, and completely incapable of earning a right standing with God. Romans 3 would say it this way, there is none righteous, no, not one. It goes on to say in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many are righteous on their own? None. Nobody gets to make that claim. Jesus preached a sermon recorded in Matthew and Luke. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. In that, the first section of that sermon is called the Beatitudes. And the first of those says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In a nutshell, this is what that Beatitude means. Blessed is the individual who shows up spiritually a day late and a dollar short. Blessed is the individual that falls on the mercy of God, knowing that they could never earn God's love Instead of God responding by saying, you wish, or in your dreams, he simply responds by bringing us into his kingdom and making us family. And so why does he do this? 
because he's love. And he graciously gives us eternal life, a gift that could never be earned by us. And this is where things get difficult for all of us. It's hard to believe that God would be so gracious. Why is it difficult to believe that? Well, simply because I know me and I can remember most of what I've done. Who I am and what I've done is not in line with a holy God. My sense of fairness struggles with the belief that God would love me, knowing me and knowing what I've done and what I'm currently doing. But it even goes beyond what we've done. There are things that have happened to us, things that we could not control, that we did not ask for, and yet they have happened. They've left us scarred and they've left us emptier somehow. And a time like Christmas seems to amplify these memories rather than suppress them. And where Christmas is billed as this magical time, for many it is a reminder of life's failures and difficult things that have happened to us. My father passed away in September of 2017. It's been uh, five years now. This will be our sixth Christmas uh, without him. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 10 years old. Uh, my mom was a very stable influence in my life. She pointed me to Jesus, taught me to love God's word. I'll be eternally grateful for that. She's watching online. Love you, mom. And so, uh, but my dad, he was kind of the polar opposite of that. My dad was a, just a force of nature, personality-wise. He was the life of the party. Uh, if there was fun to be had, he was in the middle of it. And he and I had a great relationship. And uh, he was a lot of fun to be around. He stayed close to us all of his life, and then in 2016, he had an opportunity to move back to West Texas. I tried to talk him out of it, because I'm like, listen, we're your only family. You'll be further away from us. Uh, this is not a good move for you. He went anyway. We stayed in touch until the spring of 2017, and then something odd happened, something that to this day I don't have an answer for. Uh, in May of that year, he just quit communicating with me. Uh, would not call me, would not take my calls, would not return my calls, would not respond to any form of communication. And this went on for about a month. And in June and July of that year, my pride boiled up. And I'm like, man, if you don't want to talk to me, fine, we just won't talk. And so for two months, I let two months go by, never made an attempt to communicate with him. And then in August, I became convicted about that. And I tried to pursue him again. And I tried to resume contact with him. And uh, I even thought about, listen, it's only a six-hour drive. I could go out there one day, be back the next. I need to go make this right. I need to just drop in on him. I need to say, hey, what's the deal? What's going on? Why are you not talking to me? I, I need to make this right. But life got in the way. I was busy. I had a job to do. I had other things going, and it just never seemed the right time. September came, and I got together with some of my college friends. We do this annually around Labor Day. And so as I was there, I was thinking, you know, I'm only three hours away from where my dad lives. I could just leave a day early. I could go out there. I could be home when I'm scheduled to be. But it just didn't seem right because the next weekend I was going to West Texas. I was going there on business, and I thought, I'll have a little time. I'll just drop in on him. I'll wait a week. And so I went home. That Monday I got a call from the police department in the town that he was living in. They had found him dead in his apartment. He had died apparently of a heart attack. Uh, this wasn't shocking. He had a long history of heart disease and had had several heart attacks before this. And so for that to happen wasn't completely a surprise. But it was five days before I was to go out there and have this communi communication with him. You know, and I, I'm not going to lie. On my worst days, in my lowest moments, the enemy uses this to bring guilt and shame into my life. You know, I hear things like, you know, a real son wouldn't have waited five months 
A real son would have made that six-hour drive. A real son would have found the time. A real son would have made the way. Maybe some of you are here today, you're in that same place. You feel stuck. You feel the despair of what life has brought your way, and maybe even some, you've made some really poor choices along the way. And you have your doubts, and you wonder if God cares, and if he does, you ask, well, where is he? Where is he at? And I think his answer to that would be, and yet there's the cross. God's glaring declaration that my sins and my poor decisions and life's failures, they don't have the final say. You hear us say this a lot around here. You are not your life's worst moment. You're not your life's worst failure. Jesus has spoken a better word over your life through his loving, gracious sacrifice on the cross. And here's where we're reminded of how beautiful the gospel really is. Over the last year, we've learned that sometimes we go sideways because we don't see God rightly. Rather than making the wise decision, we stumble into folly. And why do we do this? Because instead of focusing on God and seeing him for who he truly is, we focus on what has hurt us or what causes us to be afraid. In some instances, we focus on a world seemingly spiraling out of control and forget that God sovereignly rules this world. And as a result, we focus on our fear and miss who God really is. And then there are other instances where we focus on a distorted view of God brought on by the possibility of a painful earlier experience, possibly even with a church, possibly uh, with just a sin or a failure on our part, and it's left its mark. So instead of drawing closer to God, we shrink away from him because we feel guilt and shame. And in all of this, we fail to see God rightly. And this is what John 1 is going to explain to us. Part of the reason that Jesus appeared for his first advent was to explain to us who God is and what he's like, to help us see God clearly. And that is the real need in our lives, to see God clearly and to draw near to him, to be a people marked by the grace of God rather than the fear of what could be or the fear that God sees our worst moment and defines us by those moments. And maybe, just maybe, we could slow down long enough to see what is really happening in our lives, to wake up and recognize that even now, in this place, in this moment, God is pursuing us. God is after us, and he invites you to draw near to him, to see him, to live in the grace and the mercy that he offers you. So let's take a look and see how John 1 addresses this truth. By the way, if you're a note taker, there are only two points today. Point number one is who Jesus is, and point number two is what Jesus has done. And so we'll take a look at the first five verses to identify who Jesus is. So if we're going to be a people who live faithfully between both advents of Jesus then we must understand who Jesus has revealed himself to be. And this is part of the purpose of John 1, to explain clearly who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So there's a lot of theology in the first three verses of John 1. I mean, a lot. And in fact, so much that we won't tackle those today for the sake of time. But instead, I want to focus in on one certain aspect of those three verses, and I want to bring something to light that you may or may not have thought about, the great rel- that it has great relevance to our topic on grace. So before we get there, let's look at John 1.1. Notice how it begins. In the beginning. You ever heard another verse in Scripture begin that way? You ever heard of another one? In fact, it's on page one of your Bible. It's in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it's the most foundational verse in all of Scripture. All the rest of it is based on that one verse. And so John is doing this intentionally. So when he starts... The Gospel of John with the phrase, in the beginning, that's not by accident. 
So he's pointing back to Genesis 1. He's making a reference to Genesis 1. And so he does this intentionally and on purpose. He wants us to understand that Jesus' advent is ushering in something new. There are theological issues and parallels to Genesis 1. As John is communicating that with the introduction of the kingdom of God in Jesus' first advent, he is creating or he's initiating a new covenant with new realities. And in those realities, Jesus wants us to understand certain things about God. But without doing a deep dive on all those things, here's the one aspect that I want us to see today. Here it is. Jesus created you, and therefore, he knows you intimately. Now, you're like, wow, that's, that's really profound, brother. But seriously, I want you to think on this for a moment. Verse 3 tells us this, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So all things were made through him. So does all things include you? Absolutely. Of course it does. Jesus made us and therefore knows us. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. His knowledge of us is complete. And therefore his knowledge is intimate. Therefore he knows everything about us. And when I say everything, I mean everything. I mean he knows all the Clint Eastwood. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so here's what goes on with that. He knows the worst about us. He knows all the dirt. He knows the sin. He knows the dirty laundry. He knows everything. And when Jesus made us, he already knew our capacity to sin, and he knew how we would fail, and he knew where we would fail. In other words, he already knew and understood the heavy price that would have to be paid on the cross for your sins. And I know, I know, I know, I know. It sounds really horrible, like we're trying to take you on a journey down memory lane to show you some of life's epic failures. But if you're paying attention, there's really, really good news in all of this. Jesus is not caught off guard by your sins and your failures. He is not less prone to love and to save you because of your sin issues. In fact, the whole of the Bible would teach the exact opposite of that. For example, Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrates, he shows us, he demonstrates his love towards us and that what? And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is that saying? Saying that Jesus wasn't waiting around for you to clean your act up and get yourself together before he would love you. He demonstrated his love for us by going to the cross while we were at our very worst. Listen, that's love. That's grace. That's mercy. And that's exactly who Jesus is. So our petty dance to avoid Jesus out of shame and guilt is pointless because you've already been outed by the cross. The cross is the glaring admission that you need a Savior in the worst way. And at the same time, our Savior knew why you needed him to save you. And Jesus knows. And when I say he knows, he knows, he knows, he knows. He knows everything about you, your life and your sin. And so the question is, why would you run from that? So the believer's life is marked by living in the fullness of grace Jesus has afforded. So when we run from Jesus during or after our sin, we show that we understand very little about the gospel. And listen, friend, he is gracious, he is kind, he is love. So in short, while Jesus understood the price that would have to be paid for your sin, out of a deep love for you, he decided to pay that price anyway. He decided to go there. And while that's a theologically condensed version of what Jesus did for us, it doesn't really explain who he is fully. But thanks be to God, God inspired John to write verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. And so in these two verses, we're going to go to the essence of who Jesus is. So let's take a look at those two verses. In Jesus was life. 
Here's the clear theological fact that John is stating. Jesus is the source of life. And how many other sources of life are there? None. Zero. Not a one. There are a number of false narratives out there that would lead you to believe they are a source of life. Instead, all they can supply is the illusion of life while providing you with something much, much darker. Instead of being a people marked by the grace that Jesus afforded, they live out the opposite of the grace-filled life. They become self-absorbed. They become self-centered, selfish in general, and not to mention sinful. And so the self-absorbed life usually shows up in one of four ways. Number one, we believe that we can be our own source of life. I'll just look to myself to be this. So we create our own individual version of truth. We pursue things that are for our benefit at the expense of others. We mortgage a healthy relationship with God and a healthy relationship with others for the benefit of me. Number two, we believe that others could be a source of life. So we look to others to be for us what they can never be. We look to others to provide a peace, a security, even a joy that only God can provide. And when they fail to provide what we ultimately need, we come to resent them rather than love them. And here's the foundation of why most relationships fail. Number three, a belief that things can be a source of life. Especially in this season, especially this time of year, we look to things or possessions to bring ultimate fulfillment. And what we find is the endless pursuit of the latest and the greatest or the bigger and the better. And instead of fulfilling the deep longing of the heart, what we end up with is an idol that will be recycled or discarded in a few years. Number four, a belief that experiences can be a source of life. So we jump from one experience to the next, hoping for the longing, that our longing will finally be fulfilled. And while these things bring temporary happiness, they never bring lasting joy. And it is the pursuit of the mountaintop experience while trying to minimize the valleys of longing and despair. What we find along the way is that even the best of experiences cannot capture what our hearts long for. Instead of finding life, we carry the despair of a fruitless, empty, lifetime search. And in all of these false endeavors, we find that what we hope for to find is far out of our grasp. So sin's greatest lie is that it will provide you life, when in reality, all it can provide you is death. And listen, it's not that it could provide you life and just chooses not to. It cannot provide you life. It has no possibility of doing that. And so in the end, sin in all its forms will lead to your demise and your destruction. So John wanted to be clear on this point. To be a people marked by grace, we must understand who Jesus is. The lasting life, the eternal joy that we so desperately long for is found in only one place, actually one person, Jesus Christ himself. And in him and him alone was life. And that life was the light of men. What is the purpose of a light? The purpose of a light is it shines in or illuminates dark areas. It brings clarity to a space so that we can actually see what is happening. In a sense, this is who Jesus is. He shines light and life into the darkest spaces of our lives. And he brings clarity to us to what is actually happening in our lives and in our hearts. And again, he is not one of many lights. He is the light. And then the light shines in the darkness. And praise God for this. The light shines in the darkness. He refused to leave us dead to our trespasses and sins. He refused to leave us lost in the dark. 
He refused to give up on us or reject us outright. And instead, he came looking for us. He initiated a search and rescue mission to find us. Luke 19.10 says he came to seek and to save the lost. He was not afraid or unwilling to enter the darkness to come after us. And folks, this is who Jesus is. And the darkness, it could not overcome the light. For humanity, the darkness is our reality. Because of our sinful nature and consequently the sin in our lives, in and of ourselves there is no fix for the darkness. And so the darkness comes to dominate us. But this is not so for Jesus. This is not so for Jesus. He is the life and that life is the light of men. And the darkness cannot and has not overcome it. And the darkness is no match for our great champion, Jesus, who has conquered sin and death. He is the line of Judah. He is the great I am. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And the darkness has no chance against the creator of the universe. And as Jesus initiated his search and rescue mission for the lost, the darkness could do nothing to stop it. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the kingdom of God obliterates the kingdom of darkness. And what John is telling us is that Jesus and Jesus alone is our great hope. And this is who Jesus is. This is the essence of his character. He made us, and therefore he knows who we are. And instead of being put off by that, he walked into the darkness and he offered us life. And what did he do? What did we do, rather, to earn this kind of love from Jesus? Nothing, not a thing. So in essence, what is John saying here? He's saying this, that in spite of knowing everything about you, including the worst, Jesus still came looking for you. That's his love expressed as concern. In Jesus was life, and it's the only source of life. And rather than keeping that to himself, he made it available to us. And that's his love being expressed as his generous mercy. And Jesus was the light of men. Consequently, he was their only hope. And he went searching in the deepest recesses of our sin to pull us out of death and destruction. And this is Jesus' love being expressed as grace. And this is who Jesus is. And so while John has explained who Jesus is, he's now going to turn our attention to what Jesus has done in verses 14 through 18. Verse 14 is one of those biblical texts where volumes have been written about the depth and the meaning of the theology. It says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when the Bible tells us that Jesus became flesh, it is being extremely clear to its meaning. This does not mean that God put on a human disguise and walked around with men for some 30 odd years. This is a Greek idea of what a God does. John is being very clear and he's very precise with both his vocabulary and his grammar in this instance. He's clearly saying that Jesus became a man and in a way that was not fully explained, he also retained his being God. It means that he was fully man and fully God simultaneously. That's hard to explain, but that's exactly what the Bible is telling us. So in the first century, this would be a mind-blowing idea because the Greeks mindset. They viewed everything that was material as something that is evil. And the Greeks would question why the God of the universe would want to not just inhabit, but essentially become something that they considered evil. But as you've already guessed, they missed the boat and the meaning of this act. And John is attempting to correct this in, the, in John chapter 1. And so John would argue that Jesus became a person so that he could step into the darkest recesses of our sin in order to save us from that sin. And so this brings us to the meaning of the phrase that Jesus dwelt among us. 
The verb dwelt actually was used to describe how a tent was constructed. And the idea was used around making your habitation or building your tent in the midst of a community. So in this instance, John is communicating that Jesus' desire was to draw near to humanity, never to isolate himself from us. In short, here's what John is communicating about Jesus and what he did. He became a person so that he could live amongst us and experience what we experience. He became us and walked through the darkness we walked through in order to save us from that darkness. This is the way that Hebrews 4 would say it. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Catch this. Let us then with confidence with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus became one of us to draw near to us so that he could extend his grace to us. And while the meaning is obvious that Jesus loved us enough to involve himself in our salvation, I believe it also has something important to tell us about what it means to be a person of grace living between two advents. One, it tells us this, is that believers practice grace in community, not in isolation. So if grace is something that is to be given away, can it be practiced in isolation? And the obvious answer is no, it can't. But this makes practicing grace a risky endeavor. And why is it risky? Because grace demands that it is displayed and not hidden. In a sense, grace puts skin on and dwells where people need grace. Being a people of grace that live between two advents means that there will be times that we suffer for the sake of the kingdom. When we are wronged and when we suffer, we have the opportunity to be people of grace like never before. These are important and weighty things to remember. But John doesn't end his description of what Christ accomplished with the word becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. There's way more to what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So back to John 1, let's take a look at it. We have seen his glory... Glory as of the only Son from the Father, catch this, full of, full of grace and truth. There's several things about the word glory in this passage I want to point out. One, Jesus' glory was visible and it was tangible. It says that they saw it. It means it was on full display all the time throughout his life. This means that Jesus' glory is a God thing. It means that he didn't receive glory from man. It's not of this earth. It was something that came from God. And this is just another indication of his divine nature. And just so we understand who is who and who did what, Romans 3.23 makes it clear how we did in the glory department. It says, for all have sinned and we fell short of the glory of God. In John Hall's case, he fell way, way way short of the glory of God. And it's Jesus alone who has attained to this glory on his own merit. So as we've already stated that Jesus' glory was visible, it was tangible, this is the way in which it was demonstrated. Let's start here because I don't want you to miss this. So it tells us that it was full of grace and truth. So that word full in Greek, here's what it means. It means to be brought to completion or it could be the maximum that is brought to bear. So in terms of grace, it means the mercy and beauty of what we're afforded in Jesus. We earned death through our sin, but Jesus gifted us life. And in that life, we have the freedom to live as Jesus intended, free from the entanglements of sin. 
But it also talks about truth, and the idea of truth plays a central role in the Gospel of John. Jesus himself identifies as truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He goes on to tell us, to let us know that it is in the truth, it is the truth that sets us free, rather. And so there are those in the gospel that resented the truth, and there are even those who rejected or refused to believe in it, but it did not change the validity or the power of the truth that Jesus communicated and even embodied in himself. The truth is direct. It communicates the desperate, sinful situation of mankind, but it also points mankind back to Jesus as the only hope for them. So what this is clearly communicating is that Jesus is the fullness of both grace and truth. He's the completion, the maximum that's brought to bear in both of those. So let's take a look at a passage in Ephesians 1 that conveys this truth. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, I'm going to read through verse 14. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, meaning in Jesus, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. Don't miss this. Don't miss this phrase, which he lavished upon us. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a minute. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus both extended his grace to cover all of our sins and at the same time satisfied the just and holy requirement of God. Because Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, it made him the perfect sacrifice to die in our place. And on the cross, God poured out his wrath on Jesus, thus satisfying the justice of God. So God was able to do both things. He was able to accomplish his love and mercy for us while maintaining his holiness. And in this, God could both save us and maintain his righteous character at the same time. Uh, I had the privilege of going to seminary once upon a time, a long time ago. I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And uh, at the time that I was going there, there was a professor there that I took several classes with. His name is Dr. Bill Toller. And uh, Dr. Toller uh, was known for a couple of things. He was a funny guy. He had a great sense of humor. And so that's one of the things that he was known for. He's also known as probably the fastest talking human being ever. And that's novel to hear him talk because, I mean, he could go, but it's not so fun when you're trying to take notes in a class in which he's lecturing. But he was also from Louisiana, and he sounded like he was from Louisiana, and you know what that means. And he had all these sayings from the South. And so I wanted to share one of those with you today uh, before you go to lunch. 
Uh, you'll thank me for this later, and if there's any kids in the room, they'll really thank me. Uh, but Dr. Toller loved talking about this aspect of Jesus, that he both saved us, he showed his grace on the cross, and God was able to maintain his justice by pouring out his wrath and punishing our sin in Jesus Christ. And so both of those things happened simultaneously. And Dr. Toller would describe that. He would say this. He said, that's slicker than snot on a glass knob. And so that, that's the way that he would talk about it. So he would throw these things into lectures all the time. And I don't know why, but that always stuck with me. So when he would talk about this, whenever this comes up, I think about that. I was like, oh, that's slicker than snot on a glass knob. And so that's Dr. Toller's gift to all of you today. And so John goes on to say this. He says, from his fullness, this is in John 1, we have all received grace upon grace. And I don't want you to miss this. From his fullness means the maximum that can be brought to bear. So we've all received grace upon grace. What this literally means, it means grace instead of grace. So it's like this. It's like God says, here's some grace. Now I'll take that away. Here's some more grace. Now I'll take that away. Here's some more grace. I'll take that away. Here's some more grace. And yet I'll take that away and here's some more grace. And so the way it's translated in the ESV, it's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And what John is telling us is that Jesus' grace is inexhaustible inexhaustible. That's hard to believe, isn't it? You're telling me after my 53 millionth sin that grace doesn't run out? That's exactly what John 1 is saying, that his grace is inexhaustible. So in Ephesians 1, when it says his grace was lavished upon us, it doesn't mean that he took a little brush and just barely covered over your sin with just enough. He just took a bucket and poured grace all over you. He lavished you in it. And so there was more than enough because it's inexhaustible. Lamentations 3 would say it this way. By the way, this is Old Testament. It tells us that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. When does it cease? Never. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. His grace is inexhaustible. How incredible is that? What a gift to us this morning. But John's not done. He goes on and he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law taught us God's expectation and his moral standard. The law wasn't a bad thing, was it? I mean, David delighted in the law, but here's the problem with the law. Well, the law could reveal our problem, but it just could not offer any permanent solution to that problem. So mankind proved incapable of keeping the law. Thus the need for Jesus. And so the law in and of itself could prove crushing. Why was it crushing? Because there's no possible way to keep it. So why does Jesus convey both grace and truth? The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus. Why does he convey both of those things? Because if God was concerned only with showing us grace, then he would be soft on sin, and he would be soft on justice, and he would let his holiness slide, and that would make him a liar and not God. But if he goes the other way, if all he's interested in is truth and the absence of grace, then basically he becomes a harsh taskmaster that only cares about our proper behavior and our religious performance. But that's not who God is. The presence of both grace and truth are necessary. He's interested in both. In addition, they serve as the guardrails against the despair of my consistent sin. So when I'm trapped in sin and when I sin again and again, I'm reminded of the grace of God. I'm reminded of the gospel and what he's afforded me. It also serves as it protects us from legalism and license so that we don't slide off the path to the right or to the left and we stay on the straight and the narrow. John says, no one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. 
He's made him known. So everything that follows in the gospel after verse 18, after our text, everything that follows in this gospel is an explanation of who God is. Every story, every account we see in the gospels is Jesus going to great lengths to explain to us what God is like. The first time uh, that I traveled to India, it's 10 years ago, hard to believe, uh, I had the opportunity to preach. They told me that I would preach. I chose the text uh, from Luke 15, uh, the story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, if you were here two weeks ago, Josh Patterson was here. He preached on that text, did a marvelous job, did an incredible job. Uh, I was told that I would preach at an outdoor venue, which was fine with me. And so when we finally arrived to this place, it was this humongous courtyard. And at the end of the courtyard was this stage set up. And they had this speaker system like something you would see at a concert. I mean, it was just way more than I ever imagined. On both sides of the courtyard were these buildings. And it was just kind of like you were encased. And there were people hanging out the windows. There were people on top of the roof. There's just like a sea of people that were there. And so when I came to this place, I'm like, what is going on? And so when I got there, they told me like, oh yeah, we marketed this by telling them if they'll come tonight, they'll get to see an American. <laughs> and I was like, oh boy. And so I'm nervous seeing all of this. I mean, you, you get told you're going to preach outside, like great. And then you show up and here's the scene. And so there's a group of pastors that call me to the side room, and I'm like, that's great. They're going to pray. This will, we need to pray. And so we go in there, and rather than praying, they have this crude map of the courtyard. And it's like, you're the bottle cap, and here's a stick. I mean, it was like crude, but it was like they're, they're trying to point out to me. And they said, because we have this speaker system, the entire village is going to be able to hear everything that you say. And there's the uh, real possibility that it would upset some people. And so there might be a mob show up. And so if the mob shows up and they come after you and they come at you from this direction, we want you to run this way. And if they come at you from this way, we want you to run this way. And I'm like, wait, time out, back up. Let's get, let, what? I thought I was just preaching. And so the whole time that I'm up there on stage, I mean, I'm looking at the back, you know, I'm looking for the group of men showing up and this is in the back of my mind and this is playing. I, I'm preaching uh, basically on this parable of the prodigal son. And in the story, if you're familiar with it, the, the, it's a parable of a father who has two sons. And in the parable, God is represented by the father, and the two sons represent two different groups of people. And so the younger son represents the people who sin egregiously. They sin rampantly. And so there's the part in the story where he comes and asks his father for uh, his inheritance. And essentially what he's saying in this moment. Now, one of the things you got to remember, when we read a parable like this, we read it as Westerners. We, we can't help that. We're, we're from the West, but these stories are Eastern, and so they have an impact on an Eastern crowd. It wouldn't happen on a Western crowd, and so this is part of their culture. This is just kind of, this, this drives with the Indian people, and so as I'm sharing this story, talking about an inheritance to a son, the younger son essentially comes to his father, and this is really what he's saying. He's like, Dad, like, I've waited around here all this time for you to die, and you just won't bother to drop dead. And really, I don't love you. I just love your stuff. And I'm wondering if I could just go ahead and get your stuff and I'll be out of your life. So when I shared this in that moment, the entire crowd in unison, thousands of people in unison, they gasped. It was like, <gasps> and I was taken aback. I mean, it scared me when they all did that together. I mean, like, what just happened? And I'm looking, are there people coming for me? And I, and it was like God, boom, snapped me back into reality. He's like, you're so wrapped up in yourself 
you're so afraid of this mob that might not be coming, listen, you're preaching the gospel. Get to it. And in this story, we remember it, the interaction between the father and his two sons. And the one is when the younger son comes to his senses and he comes running home to his father, only hoping that he'll be a slave of his father, but his father accepts him back fully, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, kills the fattened calf, throws a party for him. They have this huge celebration for the son that came home. He was lost, he's found, he was dead, he's alive, and they're partying over this. And the older brother hears the commotion out in the field, and he's like, what is that? And they're like, oh, your younger brother came home. And he is hacked. He has had it up to here. And finally, his dad comes out to the field to check on him. He's like, hey, what's the deal? Why won't you come in and, and celebrate? And his son shares, all these years, all these years, I was here. I was the one who was loyal to you. I was the one who showed up day after day. I'm the one who obeyed you. I'm the one who did all the things. And this son of yours goes off and blows your inheritance and comes back and you accept him with open arms? Really? What's that about? And I love the father's response. He says, look, your brother, he... He was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. And, and I love this part. The father tells him it was only fitting, meaning it was only right that we celebrate. I don't know who I'm talking to today. I don't know who's out there. Maybe for some of you, you're the prodigal. Maybe for some of you, you have sinned so much and so often, and you're so far from God, you're like, there is no way God could love me. And I hope if I've shown you anything today, you're wrong. His grace is inexhaustible. He loves you, and he's calling you to come home. Come home. And if that's you, then come home. But listen, for those of you out there that you're like the older brother, that you've been in this so long, you're so wrapped up in this that the idea of grace no longer even gives you a sense of awe. God is speaking to you. And God is trying to wake you up to the reality of who he is. And if that's you, then there are certain things that we need to understand. If we're going to be people who live in the midst of grace, we're going to be awed by grace, we're going to live in grace, we're going to be people who live between two advents and go after grace, here's what it means to be a people of grace living between two advents. One, grace is not observed and it's not experienced in isolation. I've already shared this, but grace is lived out in community. We have a relationship with God as individuals. We have a relationship uh, with each other as a church family, and that's important. Number two, grace embraces truth, and truth embraces grace. In all our relationships, both have to be present. Grace and truth are the guardrails that protect us from legalism and license. So Ephesians 4 tells us this, that we're to speak the truth in love. And both of those things have to be there in all of our relationships. Number three, it tells us this. People of grace recognize the mercy of God as an opportunity to draw close to Jesus, not as a license to sin. But here's the reality. We do sin. So therefore, confession and repentance are simply the air we breathe. 
We live in, what, in the beauty of what the gospel has afforded us, and we need to be transparent with each other, and we need to confess our sins to each other, and we need to ask for repentance, and that just needs to be who we are. Number four, people of grace live with eternity in mind, and as a result, are quick to forgive. R.C. Sproul had this saying, it went something like this, when I think I'm unfairly hated, I try to remember that I'm also unfairly loved. And that's exactly who I am, someone who is unfairly loved by Jesus Christ. I pray that's the case for you. If that's not the case for you, I'd love to speak with you about that today. But if it is, I pray that we're in awe of who Jesus is. I pray that we're in awe of what he's provided, and I pray that we're in awe of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for giving us this opportunity to be here in your house. I thank you for giving us this opportunity to take a look at your word and to be reminded of how great you are, to be reminded of how gracious and loving that you've been with us, how kind and generous. You haven't glossed over our sin, but rather you paid for our sin. You stood in our place. You took what was ours. And I'm eternally grateful for that. I thank you for being so kind. I thank you that you have been uh, just incredible in the way that you've loved us. I pray in this moment if there are those here who are struggling with the idea that you love them, struggling with the idea that you are gracious and you are kind, I pray that you would break through that in a way that only you can. And I pray that there are others here today who have been around this so long they've forgotten the majesty and the beauty of it. I pray that you would awaken their hearts to the reality of it. God, I pray that you would do what only you can do in this moment. I pray this all in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.